0: You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. We'll have more
1: news this evening, but first, the latest genealogy, a Roddenberry Podcast. Mm. Episode 5, Patrol Boat.
0: Welcome to Mission Log
1: Genealogy. I'm Earl Green. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Genealogy, we set sail into the back catalog of Gene Roddenberry's earliest TV scripts and go fishing for the morals, meanings, and messages that he might have been weaving into that early work. And along the way, we
0: might even run into scripts Gene wrote that went unsold, stories that went untold, unseen for decades, and unheard until now. This week, we're still on the beat or on the boat, with the 1950s syndicated crime drama, Mr. District Attorney. And things are getting nautical because this one involves a patrol boat.
1: Earl will be back with trivia in a moment, but first, here's how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry, Drop us a line at MissionLog at Roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at MissionLogPod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. And now, here's our skipper, Earl Green, with this week's Trivia. With IMDb
0: claiming a July 1955 air date for this episode, we're almost at the end of Jean's or Robert Wesley's, time on this series, and almost to the end of the series itself. Once again, there's no information whatsoever on who this episode's guest stars were, but then I found myself wondering, did anyone other than Gene and David Bryan work on both this show and in any of Gene's later work? given that most of IMDb's episode listings for Mr. District Attorney contain no-cast information, one has to consider the results of this query as partial at best. But the answer is yes. A guest star named Paul Power put in a guest appearance in an early episode of Mr. District Attorney, not one that Gene wrote, and he later appeared in a non-speaking role as one of the Organian elders in Errand of Mercy. And there's another writer who put lines in the mouths of both Paul Garrett and James T. Kirk. And that writer is Hendrik Volertz, who, under the name of Rick Volerts, wrote the episode, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. There are actually more crossovers between Mr. District Attorney and the Lieutenant, with actor Russ Conway, director Leon Benson, and writer Ellis Marcus having worked on both. Even more crossovers occur between Mr. District Attorney and Have Gun, Will Travel, and it's possible to start losing track of how many crossover personnel happened with shows such as West Point and Highway Patrol that were not only in Gene's near future, but were also produced by Ziv television programs. So even at this stage of his career, was Gene getting the band together? Probably not in the strictest sense, but he was almost certainly making a note of who he enjoyed working with. For now, however, he was guiding the latest case for Mr. District Attorney.
1: Paula, where are those mailboard invoices? Here. Henry, what is going on? Secret phone conversations? Tensions in every step, every word. Please, Paula, I'm tired. Seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and we can't stay in the black. That's not it. There's something else. The Northern Cross Lading Bills, for instance. Why are they in the files? We shipped to them months ago. Just a mistake. Then why do we have crates in the warehouse marked to those bills? Whose are they? They don't belong to us. It's a new shipment. I know better, Henry. Henry. I've been your office boy, stock clerk, sometimes even your longshoreman. I've gotten a bit aching so we could have a business to call our own. An honest business, Henry. Win or lose, honest. Honesty is just a word. Plenty of successful men started with dirty hands. Rich maybe, but not successful. Henry, I love you. I love you very much, but I won't help you be a criminal.
0: When crime rears its head, District Attorney Paul Garrett is the man who organizes the law enforcement effort to stop it in its tracks and bring the criminals to justice. Act 1. What's up, Doc? Well, more specifically, what's up at the dock? It's a cargo ship being unloaded, though some of the dock hands doing the unloading are a bit suspicious. Like Moke Thorson, a tough guy who knocks out the deck watch, freeing Moke and his men, to unload selected cargo without any prying eyes. They're offloading cargo to a smaller vessel owned by Henry Higgins, Moke's partner. But here's the trick, it's not their cargo at all. It's a heist, in the low light of daybreak because Moke and Higgins know enough to pass themselves off as legit deckhands. The plan is to offload the stolen cargo into Higgins' import warehouse before anyone's the wiser, but things don't go quite to plan. Higgins fails to cast off all the lines before Moke gets the boat underway, and this swings the boat around, catching the dock line in the propeller and damaging the blades. They have no choice but to make their best speed to the warehouse before drawing any more attention. District Attorney Paul Garrett is called out to the harbor by Lieutenant Riker. The cargo theft has been noticed. There will definitely be a case to prosecute if Riker's investigation turns up solid leads. Riker recruits Officer Warner, who takes Riker and Garrett around the harbor in the police patrol boat. Their first stop is the cargo ship, whose captain has agreed to a layover for the duration of the investigation. The deck watch, who was knocked out, did get a look at the smaller ship to which the cargo was taken, and noticed that it was having trouble making way away from the dock. It's also discovered that the escaping boat may have propeller damage. All of this information helps narrow Riker's search and the trail seems to lead straight to the launch at Higgins' import-export. At Higgins' warehouse, Moke makes it clear that since Higgins made a mess of this operation, Higgins can take care of the cleanup. But someone else in Higgins' life gets to call the shots too, his wife Paula. She's noticed not just that her husband is on edge, but that there are bookkeeping irregularities, and who is this Moke guy who keeps showing up? She senses something is up. Higgins orders the crew of his boat to just dump the propeller in the bay. Act 2. Garrett and Riker arrive at Higgins' office to ask him some questions, and one of those questions cuts right to the chase. Where were you when the cargo was stolen? Higgins' answer is a lie, and then he puts Paula on the spot, saying that she can corroborate his story. She lies to protect him. They show Garrett the invoices, the warehouse, and everything seems to be in order. Garrett and Riker leave to pursue other leads. Once they're gone, Higgins starts loading the stolen cargo. It's time to finally get rid of the stuff. But when Paula says she's leaving him, Higgins is suddenly less interested in the cargo. He even offers to leave the cargo for the cops to find, elsewhere. But Higgins' timing could not be worse. Guess who just showed up and overheard that? Moak. Moke tells Higgins to keep loading cargo, and Higgins does. Paula is disgusted, but at least now she knows who's really in charge. Elsewhere, Riker and Garrett discover that Higgins just bought a brand new propeller for his boat. It's time they went and questioned him further. But just before they get there, having gotten all of his stolen cargo loaded, Moke beats Higgins up and takes Paula as a hostage. Garrett and Riker arrive just in time to see the boat pull away from the launch, with Moke and Paula aboard. Terrified that Moke will kill his wife, Higgins tells Garrett everything. A quick call to Warner on the patrol boat, and they're in hot pursuit with handcuffed Higgins in tow. When Moke tries to disembark, holding Paula at gunpoint, it's Higgins who gets loose and tries to save his wife. Moke shoots Higgins in the shoulder for his trouble. This distraction is all Riker needs to get the drop on Moke. It's all over. Higgins and Paula live to see another day, though Higgins will be facing charges, and Moak is now in the hands of the police.
1: The end. Not only was that a wonderful recap, Earl, but I do believe it was probably the shortest recap that we've done so far for Mission Log Genealogy, at least for Mr. District Attorney. Is there a specific reason why this one was so short? Our Are we getting really good at looking at between the lines of the scripts? Or is this just one of those kind of scripts that, well, it is what it is?
0: I think to some extent it does fall under the it's what's rule. However, this script was a lot of detailed notes about locations. And it really gave me the feeling, this is a place that Gene has hung out or spent time. You know, maybe it was part of his beat, because there are even notes in the script about, here is where you could shoot this. Mm-hmm. Which we haven't seen anything like that since he was nominating a place to stand in for the airplane factory in defense plant gambling. Here he's telling you where to go down at the harbor. And I I couldn't help but feel like, okay, this is some place he knows well. And that maybe while he was there one time, sort of like you were saying about the courtroom last time. You know, Mm -hmm. he looks around and says, you know, I could set a story here.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was so much specific stuff going on with the script when it came to boating. In your research, did you find any indication that Gene was an avid boater? Because, again, I I don't know if he had a consultant. I don't know if he had a friend. I don't know if he had somebody that he would boat with. But, again, it was very specific and for very specific reasons why he chose certain scenarios to to put into his story.
0: It was not uncommon, especially at this point in American history, you know, kind of the, the post-war boom. And, you know, things are good for the economy, for some people. It was not uncommon for people to have a boat and to just go boating. And so I suppose one could gain that experience recreationally. I remember my uncle telling me when I was much younger, Earl, the happiest day in a man's life is when he buys his boat. The second happiest day of his life is the day he sells it.
1: (laughs) I've heard something similar to that, yeah.
0: But yeah, I definitely got a feeling that this is someplace he has been, and this is someplace he's looked around and said, I could set a story here. And you know, once he's in this writing groove, because we are on script number five out of six that he wrote for Mr. District Attorney. So we're almost out of the DA's office for good on genealogy. It it really does seem like he was in writer mode now where he was looking at everything and saying, I could set a story here. Now, when we covered court escape, you asked if Ziv was splashing out more on Mr. District Attorney's budget, and I had the thought that it might have been an outlier Like, that was an unusually spendy episode surrounded by bottle shows. And that may have been the case, but this episode kind of seems to point toward a pattern, which is, Gene is getting to do a lot of big episodes with locations and requirements. Mm -hmm. Generally, you repeatedly assign that sort of thing only to your trusted writers who you know can pull it off, ...without bankrupting your production budget. But Gene's really going all out here. Because this episode... This is not second unit stuff. This is not send someone to get film of the courthouse. This is not stock footage. He's got the stars of this show... ...on location... ...in boats. So you have permits. You have to have safety talks with cast and crew. This is not a cheap episode. At least not on paper
1: yeah with all of the different things going on in this episode, but I'm wondering if they hire people for shows like this that would be both actor, character and stunt person in the example of Moke and Higgins because there's a there are you know several action scenes involving both of them. I don't know if they were actors of any you know stripe, but is that how they would probably save in the costs there for the bottom line hire actor slash stuntman
0: uh, that would not be an unheard of shortcut you would almost think Paula would have to be played by a stunt woman as well, because she gets Mm -hmm. kind of manhandled aboard the boat. Right. Anything you're doing about, you know, getting on or off of a boat, you've got to be very careful. But simultaneously making it look like you're struggling and trying to get away, that's a whole different thing. Now, I also know that, you know, we're in the 50s on a TV budget, and I'm going to hazard a guess that not all of the... Hollywood safety protocols that exist now existed then. Yes. So it could be that I'm overthinking it. But yeah, there's there's a lot going on here and a lot of it just seems so very specific. Like, you know, Gene went boating with a buddy and as they're tootling around the marina or whatever, he's like, Hey, I've I'm getting an idea here. I'm getting an idea here.
1: I mean, it's very well possible that he experienced that kind of accident himself, maybe as a novice boater. He's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that I didn't untie the line properly, and I scratched my boat, or I scratched my friend's propeller. What a bonehead move. Wait a second. This would be a great idea for a script. (laughs) Yeah, because the whole point of that plot
0: point is it leaves a mark. It Mm -hmm. leaves evidence. Right. Speaking of vocabulary words, we've got them. We've got multiples in this episode. A sap. Yeah, I was fairly sure instantly what it was talking about. But I looked it up just to be sure. Because the script specifies that Moak has a leather sap. And that is a short, blunt weapon with a handle. And presumably that's the leather part. With mm-hmm. a short rope or chain connecting it to a weight. And when you swing the handle, the kinetic energy is transferred to that weight.
1: Right, right, yeah.
0: A- and the, the weight is probably metal, Uh, Sometimes it's lead, I have to imagine, that would really hurt. This -hmm. was also known as a blackjack, especially among sailors, and in British naval and military parlance, it's called a kosh. Can you repeat that, please? It's called a what? It's called a kosh. So this is more like a wind wing than an elevator starter, because I had a really strong feeling that I knew what it was, but I thought I'd better look it up anyway. And that's your genealogy vocabulary word of the week from me. Uh, Maybe not unknown to anyone else out there, but I was curious enough that I had to go double check on it.
1: That's a fun thing, though, isn't it? Like you're reading the script and you're like, I kind of know what that is. I want to make sure that I do. And then I think I'm just going to share this with everybody because you think you know and maybe you don't.
0: And it gives me an opportunity to say kosh a bunch of times in a, a podcast that's not about that other show.
1: And so it continues.
0: Yes. So there's an unusual note at the bottom of scene 25. See technical advisor regarding police sign for landing, lettering blank out on PB, I'm guessing that's patrol boat two, and boat pennant. So my guess is that most of this involves covering up signage that would make it really obvious that all of this equipment, all of this police gear belongs to the LAPD. But it's also Gene making sure that he's getting both writer and technical advisor pay that week. So you go, Gene. No hour is truly wasted if it's billable.
1: Oh, that's a great point. If you're going to do
0: double the duty, you got to get double the pay. Smart man. He's a technical advisor. What do you think? Well, writer, I don't know.
1: <laughs> that would be an interesting self-conversation. <laughs> There are interesting things that are happening throughout the course of the scripts that we've done so far. In scene 27, there's a description of Garrett when he takes a long, thoughtful draw on his cigarette. I don't remember him smoking before. Did we see him smoke before? And I'm wondering if this was also a product placement for a cigarette sponsor. Now, I'm
0: pretty sure I had noticed there are some episodes on YouTube. None of them are the the ones that we're talking about, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have noticed in some of the YouTube episodes that he is a smoker. This is the first time I've noticed the script directing the actor how to do that.
1: Right. That's what I was getting at. Yep. Another detail that uh, we've talked about from time to time on scripts are references for money. And in this episode, there's a specific reference of the sum of roughly $180,000 for all the merchandise and money stolen from from the cargo ship. In today's value, that would be a little over $2 million. So this heist, it was a decent heist. I mean, it was, it was big time, enough for the district attorney to get involved. And Earl, I do have a very specific reference later on as to why the district attorney appears on these types of cases.
0: That's interesting, because I've been wondering that myself this seems often more like a cop show than a legal show Mm -hmm. but that adjustment for inflation that's significant and in mr district attorney money terms 180 grand i think we can boil that down to calling it a half
1: olga oh yeah it's totally a half olga and if you've been paying attention, good for you. Speaking of paying attention, are you ready to learn another another word, Earl, from I this am script? Always ready to learn another word. Okay, so in scene fifty-five, Paul Garrett asks Higgins for an alibi. Garrett says, Now, last night, seven o'clock. And then Higgins says, That one's easy. Seaside Cafe, dinner, regular ninety cent blue plate. And Garrett says, Fine, sounds like a bargain. I've heard that term blue plate or blue plate special my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I just assumed it was what it was, but I never really thought about it. But now I need to know about these things because reasons, because I love history. You all out there love history, or maybe you wouldn't be listening to the show because this is a historical ish show. So I looked it up in an article on culinarylore.com. It describes the blue plate special as the name given to a special, inexpensive plated lunch or dinner, served in diners and other inexpensive restaurants. The tradition of the Blue Plate Special has been around since at least the 1920s, and it was a hearty and cheap meal, perfect for the hardworking but money-strapped folks of the time. There are some sources that claim the first known use of the Blue Plate Special was in 1892 by the Fred Harvey, quote-unquote, Harvey House restaurants, which, located along the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, served fast meals to travelers. Fred Harvey supposedly brought cheap disposable blue plates with divided sections, and it also claimed that the blue color was an imitation of the famous and much more expensive plates made by Josiah Wedgwood. There is also some indications that the tradition actually began on railroad dining cars rather than the diners these cars were eventually turned into. Rather than a solid blue disposable plate, however, there's more evidence to suggest that the plates the blue plate special derived its name from were plates made in the popular blue willow China pattern, a pseudo-Chinese pattern widely produced by porcelain firms of the time and used extensively by restaurants all over the country. So yes, when Higgins says blue plate special or blue plate, he's a thrifty man and someone who's on a budget, but someone who likes value for his money. I like it when dialogue like this describes a lot about a character in a nutshell or in this case a blue plate special
0: that's a wonderful little example of economy of writing that that detail takes you into that character's world and tells you what higgins is about and like you norm i had heard blue plate special my whole life without having You know, gone on a deep dive to find out what exactly that was referring to. Whose blue plates are we talking about? And where did this get started? So that's kind of fascinating.
1: I actually do think that the trays in the Hungry Man frozen foods are actually blue plastic. Hence, you know, maybe that was just a tradition carried on by these inexpensive, but rather like value-added meals. Because they are portions, they're probably not the best uh, ingredients in the world, but you get a lot of your meal, you know, for the price.
0: Right, yeah, it's, uh, it may not be the most nutritious thing, but it's very filling. Do you remember when we were praising the Police Academy script for not killing off Willie, mm-hmm. or allowing him to come to any other harm? Well, here, it, we have Higgins doing exactly what we were worrying would happen to Willie. This also made me notice, you know, Higgins and Moak... Made me notice this show has a frequent character dynamic with its guest characters. You've got the tough guy, and you've got whoever he's beating down on. Macaulay, we have Willie, and now we have Higgins, and that made me wonder if Higgins is, you know, since this is a boat episode, just a wet Willie. So, Norm, let's hear it for a script from Mr. District Attorney that isn't a sausage fest.
1: Google that one, people.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about Paula Higgins. She is not unreasonable in her demands or her suspicion. She is forced into something of the damsel in distress role toward the end when mm-hmm. Moak takes her hostage. But prior to that, she has her own agency. Obviously, there is a complicated relationship going on with her and her husband. And it's still sympathetic and easy to relate to. You know, I think we've all had that relationship in our lives, you know, however briefly, hopefully, it was, where you're trying to be supportive of someone and then you look up one day and you're wearing a little stick-on name tag that says, Hi, I'm the enabler. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was really happy to see a woman in a story without her being the victim, like Olga, or without her being the femme fatale like we had in Defense Plant Gambling. Right. The script almost seems like they're trying to set her up to be kind of a nag, at least in her husband's eyes, but then the script also makes it very clear he's wrong. He's in the wrong. And just before everything goes sideways, uh, she's about to bail out on him. And so I just thought it was fascinating to have... A midi role for a woman, which has definitely been in the minority in this show. Last week, when we were talking Court Escape, I-, I thought about it whenever I saw how large Paula's role in this episode was, and I thought back to Court Escape, and I was like, wait a minute, there wasn't even a woman in Court
1: Escape, not one. Right. No, you're right. Yeah. yeah and, you know, like, looking at Paula's role in this, it's not... Just even just the, the amount of, of script time that she's been given, but the quality of writing that that gene created for this character. And I, I think that we're going to get into that in a little bit. I, I really do like that she doesn't fall into like the, I guess, the stereotypical category of a female character that we see in shows of, of this era, like you said, like the enabler or the femme fatale or uh, the victim. You know, and she has been victimized in a way, but not to the extent, say, that Olga was victimized. But there is a pattern that's emerging that I'd like to talk about uh, in a point. But one of the things I, I really wanted to talk about, and it's a point that was made in one of our After Darks on Discord, was the whole premise of the name Mr. District Attorney, but why is he more investigative than being a prosecutor, you know, and where's that disconnect? And I thought that that's a really interesting observation. Thank you for people on Discords After Dark for making that uh, part of the discussion. I had to look at the strict definition of what a district attorney is responsible for. I went on the National District (laughs) Attorney. I know it's it's a real thing. I went on the National District Attorney's website. It's called NDAA.org to see what the district attorney actually does. And this is the definition according to the website. The district attorney, also known as a prosecutor, plays a critical role in our criminal justice system. They represent the government in criminal cases and are responsible for ensuring that justice is served by prosecuting individuals accused of committing crimes. Throughout the criminal justice process, and this is the interesting part, folks, the prosecutor works with law enforcement agencies to investigate crimes determine where charges should be filed and prosecute cases in court. They also prioritize working with victims and witnesses to ensure their rights are protected and they are supported throughout the process. So now when you take like the observations of why is he doing more investigating than prosecuting, it's not that he's doing one more than the other, it's that he's responsible for both. And I think that there's kind of like a misnomer about what the district attorney does, say the quote unquote attache carrying suit wearing prosecutor, a la Perry Mason, versus somebody who's out in the field like a detective, a la Joe Friday. It's kind of a mixture of both, right? So it's it's not it's not far from the truth that say a Paul Garrett would be called in by a Lieutenant Riker as a district attorney to work with somebody in the Detective Bureau, not just for any crime. We're not talking about petty crime here. We're talking about a $180,000 value crime in a port that would equate to over a $2 million crime today. So that's, I think that's significant knowing that the district attorney would be involved investigating that case at the ground level. Does that make sense, Earl?
0: Yeah, because he's probably going to be telling his colleagues, you know, on the police force at the very least, this is what kind of evidence would turn this case he's going to have a better idea than probably the guys on The Force do of what it's going to take to get a case in front of a judge and not get it, you know, laughed out of court for lack of evidence. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really interesting, and I think this kind of goes back to the economy of storytelling. Because the production is on a budget and has to be kind of compact, you know, we're 30 years away from the big voiceover at the beginning in the criminal justice system, there are two equally important. You know, all of that stuff, that's. We're 30 years off from that. Right. So, to carry this off in a half hour of television, Garrett's got to be kind of a glorified cop sometimes. I mean, in Police Academy, he was armed for crying mm-hmm. out loud. There really wasn't much separating him from the police officers he was working with. It's kind of interesting to hear that he would be involved on this level. I I still think he's more involved than he actually would be, but we have 20-odd minutes to tell a story. We can only afford so many actors, and so Mr. D.A. is hes every arm of the law. If the law was an octopus, he's still every arm of the law.
1: I mean, it goes kind of like hand in hand with I know that in in the parlance of this top cop always equated to the district attorney. I think the title of the episode would be, you know, or the title of the show would be more interesting than, say, you know, Paul Garrett, crime investigator, because it just doesn't have the same tone. Right. You know, district attorney obviously has the weight and gravitas behind that. But it is an interesting distinction to make, you know, when it comes to. How many different levels of involvement that you are, you know, in these specific roles? Like a Lieutenant Riker couldn't do, obviously, even prosecute what Paul Garrett would do because you know Paul Garrett knows the law in that way. Riker knows the law in his own certain way. But I love the fact that they're both working together, like, uh, to solve the case. Speaking of the case, I wanted to get into the Henry Higgins character, and I can't say Henry Higgins without trying to sing the name Henry Higgins. Just you wait, Henry Higgins. Oh my gosh. Audrey Hepburn as Paula, has popped into my head. I don't know um, how I'm going to get that out. Anyway, I digress. My Fair Lady, go watch it. You'll thank yourself for it. In scene 44, Paula, that's Henry Higgins' wife, is tired and frustrated and just wants the truth about the mysterious box of goods in their warehouse. She lays into her husband saying, I've gone to bed aching so we can have a business to call our own. You know, previously in a in a chunk of dialogue, you know, she's done everything from haul boxes, you know, to mark inventory, to do the bills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, from soup to nuts, she says that I want an honest business, Henry. Win or lose, honest. And Higgins replies, "Honesty is just a word. Plenty of successful men started with dirty hands." And Paula replies, "Rich maybe, but not successful. Henry, I love you. I love you very much, but I won't help you be a criminal." This is what we are talking about, to go back to your earlier point, Earl. This is the really quality of writing that a female character is finally getting in Jean's scripts, because I love the moral compass that she has. I love the fact that she can distinguish clearly between rich and successful. They're not necessarily always you know, mutually exclusive, but in this case, she knows the difference between the end road for one and definitely the quality for the other. And for some, wealth is the only goal. And that means success. For others, success can be as simple as living a good and honest life or have an honest business, like she's saying. So we know like, what she means by one or the other words. Now, I want to take us back to a discussion that we had in genealogy episode two, Wife Killer, when we discussed the masculinity script, quote unquote, of which point two of the four part blueprint of manhood states, the big wheel Men must gain and retain respect and power and are expected to seek success in all they do. How applicable is this in Gene's writing to continue this trend with this character of Henry Higgins?
0: I think you're onto something there. And I find it fascinating that if we are to pick out you know, one character who is... Basically kind of the voice of the author speaking to the audience. It's Paula. That might almost count as revolutionary for a syndicated crime drama in 1955. I know we're talking about words Gene put into a character's mouth. But this whole thing about plenty of successful men started with dirty hands. You talk about trying to justify the ends and the means. At what point do you decide it's okay to, oh, the result has been good, so it was okay that basically I was a crook at the beginning? Mm-hmm.
1: I can barely even wrap my head around that conceit. Yeah, and I'm wondering if this is something that's new to the audience of 1955. It could be. Again, you have a whole generation of men who have been raised
0: to kind of hew to that standard of masculinity you know this is how you fit in you you do want to fit in don't you and it's there's so much pressure to conform to that it's quite something to have a character in this story perhaps indirectly criticizing that whole racket that whole masculinity racket that we have discussed before
1: well, was it Miss Thornberry, I think it was, in Defense Plant Gambling? She called out Zarat for this culture of toughness where she's basically stating the obvious, which is what's happening in front of her, that no matter how tough you think you are, you crack under pressure just like I thought you would, just like the result of this brainwashing that your culture has you know, imposed upon you because I really know the truth, and this is the real truth, and you're proving it right now. So, I mean, you know— we're seeing certain interesting patterns forming here. And this isn't the only time that we've seen this happen to, say, a Paula-type character. I mean, we've seen the wife of the protagonist suffering at the hands of their respective husbands. You know, we've seen Olga and, uh, you know, Olga Durant under Tom's extreme gaslighting in Wife Killer. And we see now Paula with Henry. Are we seeing a pattern emerging with Gene's storytelling? And do you think this will continue in the next script? And I'm wondering we're only talking about the scripts that were produced, not necessarily the scripts that may have been submitted. So I'm wondering if there were any other scripts that just didn't make it to final script draft uh, that we don't know about also.
0: That's possible. And here's here's kind of the counter question, though. This pattern that you're noticing, is it necessarily with Gene's storytelling, or is this a limitation of the format of this show? And that's Hmm. something... I'm going to talk about a little bit more later because I do feel like Gene is... His skill as a writer and his desire to get some messaging, to slip some messages in under the door along with his entertaining action-adventure story, I feel like he's starting to chafe a little bit. He's found the outside of the envelope Mm -hmm. and he's elbowing up against it. And it's not a problem he's going to solve by staying on this show. Like I said, we are almost at the end of the show, but regardless of that, we are... Next week is going to be our last Mr. District Attorney show on genealogy. Gene's about done with this show. He will move on to others. They probably also have limitations, but he's, got to, he's a working writer. He's got to maintain a certain cadence of output... And, in some ways, he's stuck with that. I'm not excusing any subpar work that we run into or stuff that just doesn't dazzle us, but it's a thing that every television writer runs into, especially in the early stages of their career, where they're trying to conform to the contours of a show that already exists that they did not create
1: and I guess that leans into the the next question I have, and maybe it's because you know he's working in such a compressed. Uh, amount of time with his scripts or compressed format or, you know, a format that's like locked into a certain formula. But was Gene actually serializing story points in his own scripts within the Mr. District Attorney format? I mean, let's take a look at some of the smaller details here. One, this crime was so big that you have to ask, is Moak part of the syndicate's operations like Zarat was or like Miss Thornberry was? Because earlier on in the script, the script did soft reference Macaulay. Now it was spelled differently, but phonetically it's the same.
0: Yeah. I wondered about that myself. And I think we called this, we may call this a week early because we were speculating last week that the Munson case, it may have been the, the end result of the Zerat and Miss Thornberry investigation all the way back in defense plant gambling. Now, it is important to stress this is speculation on our part. Sure, connecting sure. all these dots. Right, e- e- reruns were just starting to happen. You did not really have people tracking this stuff, but it's very interesting. I thought it was very interesting that he's referring to a Macaulay case. However, not sure you would call that the Macaulay case because Macaulay was not the perp. He was not the suspect. He was the right. guy who got beaten up. He, you know, I'm sure he testified. And remember, he talked to a bunch of other people who would wound up on, you know, the wrong end of Zarat to testify against him. But I don't think you would call that the Macaulay case. So it could be that Macaulay is, you know, another one of these names like Riker. Mm-hmm.
1: Riker shows up for his third appearance in our five total scripts right now. So it's swirling around in Gene's mind. I need somebody here. Why not use Lieutenant Riker? But again, we've seen him go from sergeant to lieutenant, and now lieutenant with Paul Garrett's bat signal, like in his back pocket, to call him onto a crime scene. So we're seeing a little bit more agency with Riker. I'm wondering if we're going to see him in the next script. I haven't looked that far ahead. But just to see if there is, you know, either coincidentally or on purpose, a soft serialized continuity that's going on with Gene scripts because he doesn't really have that many to work with.
0: Gene's a clever guy, and you know, even with the later work that we are all so familiar with, kind of our entry point into his writing, he was really pushing the envelope of what could be done with the medium at that time, so I wouldn't be surprised. I also want to be careful and not try to overinterpret things, but I did notice in this episode, Riker does a lot of heavy lifting, I'm betting that guy is going to make Commander sometime soon.
1: So we finally docked at the end of Patrol Boat for Genealogy. And what we do here, as we do with our standard mission log podcast, we take a look at the episode in total, our entire discussion, and see if... There is a moral or a meaning or a message that we can find that ties into Gene's more famous work, and try and find kind of like the stylization of what Gene was writing at the very early stages of his career, and see if there's anything in that wonderful sliver of the Venn diagram in between. So patrol boat, that is the most I don't know the cleverest not clever title that describes this episode, but. How did you feel about it, Earl? What were your thoughts on the episode, your final thoughts? And did you find any morals, meanings, or messages contained therein?
0: I was so close to deciding, you know, the first couple of read-throughs of this script. uh, I was really close to just writing this off as court escape, but on a boat. But my mind keeps going back to Paula Higgins, deciding that something stinks and deciding to do something about it. And then she has the realization that maybe all she can do about it is get herself out of the blast radius of whatever is about to go down. Good for her. That's a solid message. Mad props to her. Now, in terms of Gene's writing and his career here, we're getting to the end of Mr. D.A., but we're also getting into some slightly samey episodes here. And this reinforces my gut instinct that Gene is bumping up against the limitations of the format of Mr. District Attorney as a show. We have only one more episode from this series to cover, and then at the risk of spoiling things, we start getting glimpses of work that seems more like what you would think of coming from the mind of Gene Roddenberry, you know, as most people would think of him. And because he's also trying to make a living as a writer and establish his foothold in the market, and you you get that foothold in the industry by turning in good work, regular work, producible work that is not going to tax the budget. Although, you know, we've got our regulars riding boats for this whole episode, so maybe that notion is out the window. He is occasionally going to have to keep writing for shows that have limitations and place limitations on him and I think really what we're on the lookout for here is how does he squeeze around that and slip us the audience a little message under the door without breaking the show as a noob if you're the new face in the writing room and you're trying to hand in something that's going to break the show you're not
1: going to be in that room very long I wonder if Gene saw any of the ratings indicators ticking up with his scripts that allowed him to flex a little bit in terms of calling the shots in his own scripts as we've mentioned before. There are a lot more specific directions for say the director or the the set designer or for the location manager to follow. So even though that, you know, he is the newer person, I'm wondering if he's uh, started to build a little bit more clout, you know, in you know, in the business and being able to, again, call a, a certain amount of specificity in his scripts to make those scripts even more memorable because of the quality that he's demanding. He's, he's
0: definitely being ambitious here. I mean, it's just, it it's the meme of the cat in a business suit, reading
1: a newspaper. I should set a show on a boat. This is um, for morals, meanings, and messages. This is probably one of the more difficult scripts, you know, of the five uh, that, that I had to dig deep on and it all comes back to and as you've mentioned before and focus on it it all goes back to Paula Higgins because I think Paula Higgins is a very interesting character and especially the interchange between her and her husband Henry I mean a lot of those scenes caught my attention especially going back to that in my opinion a pivotal scene in the script where Higgins says to Paula honesty is just a word plenty of successful men started with dirty hands so I'd ask the question But does this mean one stays successful only if one hands stay dirty? Or if one tries to wash their hands of their past, does that mean they are morally clean, yet financially set back or even ruined? So where's that fine line between doing what's right and what's wrong in this equation? And I think that's what Paul is trying to, you know, she's trying to balance out. If Henry ended up profiting from his crime. And providing Paula with this lavish lifestyle I think that he wants to afford her, is this being a successful man because their money problems have disappeared, that he's, he has been able to check off the part two of the masculinity script, you know, the big wheel? Or was he just stuck? Was Henry just stuck in perhaps a failing business and a failing marriage? Is that his reality? Is that his motivation? You know, is that motive enough for him to be able to perpetrate a crime? But the one thing that I do think that he was able to see in the end and to save in the end was Paula's dignity, you know, because I think that when he sacrificed himself, when he threw himself uh, at at Moke to save Paula, I think he saw in himself what she saw in him when they first got married. And I think maybe I'm giving him more credit here than you, Earl, but I think that Well, I mean, if you're going to take a bullet for somebody, if that doesn't prove your love for somebody, I'm not sure what will. The big question, though, I want to ask, if Moke and Henry got away with the heist from the very start, would Paula have ever known? Or would Henry's sudden windfall, which helped turn around this failing business, just have been a ruse that Paula would have believed and just part of this loving, supportive husband that wanted to provide her this wonderful lifestyle, right? He's hardworking. He's dedicated. She was behind him every step of the moment, lying to Garrett and sacrificing her own moral dignity because she believed in him. But if Henry never committed another crime, if successful people originally got their hands dirty, and then he and Paula led this clean and charitable life because of their success and even perhaps became pillars of their community, is that justification enough for one to dirty their hands with crime to begin with?
0: Yeah, that one sentence out of this script is a spectacularly troubling message. And, you know, again, it's lines put in a character's mouth by the writer. I am not saying that, you know, Gene thought this in any way. And perhaps the most challenging thing about this script is that he doesn't really answer the question of whether or not Henry is right in what he says. He's just putting it on the table for the audience to consider and backing away slowly. Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Sean McDaniel as Henry Higgins and Rhea Papa Giorgio as Paula Higgins. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry Archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com.
1: Our website is MissionLogPodcast.com. On the next genealogy, police brutality.
0: Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel. Paul Shadwell and David Tekachi. We'll be back next week with more of your favorite programs. This concludes our broadcast day.